Good evening. Please open your Bibles to page 341 to the book of Joshua chapter 8. I'll be honest, the first time I read through this chapter, it's going to be a long detail of a battle. And I asked myself, how in the world am I going to preach through basically a battle scene? But as I got deeper into this text, I began to see the promises of God show up in ways that I never imagined in my first time reading through it, and I pray that will be the case tonight. One of the gifts of preaching through books in the Bible is that you have the context for what happened before chapter 8, and it informs what's taking place here. Chapter 6 was the Battle of Jericho. It was the battle in which the Israelites just circled a city and supernaturally the walls just crumbled down. And in that supernatural act, we learned a lot about God and we learned a lot about ourselves. And then chapter 7, we have supernatural catastrophe. The Israelites race off into the city of Ai and they're soundly defeated. Then sin is discovered in the camp. Israelites die. And then God's anger is subsided. And you're left asking the question, if, if this were the text, you want to flip the page and say, Lord, what next? What do you do with a people who have confessed their sins to you? Do you continue to hold that against them? Or do you treat them differently? And in short, what we see is that God treats his people and gives them success. And he carries them forward into the promised land. And because you don't believe in a God like that, a God who forgives and a God who carries you forward, the Old Testament gives you historical narratives, stories that help convince you of this truth. I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 29. I'm going to skip verses 10 through 13 because they're a bit out of chronological order and they could confuse you. At least they confused me several times. So, and I skip those verses, uh, you'll understand why. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall not do to Ai as its king, you shall do to Ai as its king, as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai, he chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with their, these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say, they are running away from us as they did before. So when they flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. 
When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, and to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Picking up in verse 14. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in a battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that's in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin toward Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it quickly and set it on fire. The men of Ai looked down and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction, for the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle with the Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields, in the desert, they had chased them. And when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until it had been destroyed, all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry out for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this is a very difficult text, a text where we see your judgment on sin, and yet, even greater, we see promises to your people. I pray, O Lord, that hearts would be opened to see the beauty and the glory and the holiness of who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our church has a small library just across the street in the McKnight building in From time to time, members or organizations will drop off boxes of books to add to this collection. Inevitably, I'll open the book at the boxes and look through the contents. And over the years, I've noticed one author that I was not familiar with, H.A. Ironside. He's a prolific writer, but not one that I'd been exposed to through my seminary training. So I read a little bit about his life and his theology, and while I probably would commend you to a different direction in terms of his theology, his life is commendable. Harry Ironside was born in the 1870s. Sadly, he was born a stillborn. 
At the moment his mother gave birth to him, the doctor set the child aside and began to attend the mother. Forty minutes later, the nurse looked down and there was an indication that there was a pulse in little Harry. She immediately picked him up and put him in a warm bath and to the mother's obviously astonishment and delight, little Harry came through. It's a tough life ahead of Harry though. A couple years later, at the age of two, his father passed away. And while his father had passed away, he left a legacy of faith that Harry knew to be true and real. School was not something that was afforded to him because he had to begin making money to help the family out. But he wasn't going to let this lack of childhood education prevent him from serving the Lord. His family moved from Toronto to California. And it was, right when he moved there, Harry realized that there was no Sunday school for children. Being a zealous little man at age 11... He decided he's going to create a Sunday school. He gathered the neighborhood boys and girls together. Boys, you go out and find a bunch of burlap sacks. Girls, you find some sewing needles and thread. And you start to stitch these together. So he stitched this burlap tent uh, that he placed over the uh, classroom. And without a teacher, young little Harry Ironside, at the age of 11, began teaching. They said if he didn't know what to teach, he just taught through uh, Isaiah 53. That was his go-to text along the way. Well, after a little bit, he, got he became convinced of this Christian perfectionism. That was the theology he began to follow. It was this idea that with enough willpower, one can live a sinless life. Well, as I said, he was zealous, and he was an ardent student of the Word of God. And the further he got into his life, he realized just how impossible it was. Every incl inclination of his heart, he realized, was to sin. And he found himself sinning more and more, and it put him in this spiral. And eventually just left the church at all cost, and he went to move this retreat of sorts. And it was there that with an elderly woman, he began to study the scriptures. In his words, after months of studying the scriptures, he said, a, a light began to dawn in my heart. And the realization that the power to fight sin does not come within but it comes when one understands that they are in the Lord. From that point forward, his life was forever changed. And he began to realize that the, what one needs in life is not to depend on oneself, but on the strength of the Lord. From that point forward, he never took another salary. He said, I'm only going to live wholeheartedly dependent upon the Lord. Many looked at his life and thought that was a bit of extreme measure to take place. But everyone realized that Harry Ironside was a man of deep faith. And when there was a need for prayer, he would be the one that you would call. 1924, he was an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. They were on the brink of foreclosing. At 12 o'clock that day, they were going to be bankrupt. The bank was going to call the note on them. The president called Harry. Harry, could you come and pray for us, please? So Harry comes in. He had one common prayer that he would pray during those times. Lord... You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Would you sell some of those and give them to us? As the story goes, shortly thereafter, a man, a rancher, was in Texas at that time, in Dallas. He had just sold two carloads of cattle just down the road at Fort Worth that he was going to take the proceeds from, and he had a deal in Dallas that fell through. Walked up to Dallas Theological Seminary to the secretary of the president, he had a check in his hand. He said, I had a deal that was supposed to go through, but it actually fell through. He said, I'm going to give this money to the seminary. 
the secretary knocked on the president's door. Harry, Harry, you won't believe it. God sold those cattle that you were talking about. <laughs> At that point forward, they laughed, of course, but they were reminded of this truth, that to live well in the Lord is to be ever dependent upon him. And the way you become convinced to live dependent upon the Lord is you understand both his providence and his power in your life. Where does this idea of providence show up in this text? I would uh, believe that it shows up with one verb and then one phrase that we see early on in chapter 8. The verb actually is there in verse 1. After the Lord says, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, it says, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai. This same verb of delivered, most of the time you'll see it as I have given. It shows up throughout the first five books of the Pentateuch over and over again. And it's normally connected to the promise of God that I will give my people this land. One of the earliest examples of that is in Genesis chapter 12. You remember the story, Abraham has to leave his home country. He must come across some uh, hill of some sort and he has a beautiful view of the land. We're told then that God actually appears to him and he says that I will give you this land. Theologians call verbs like this light words. It's a, it's a leading or guiding word in the text. And whenever you see it, it's to remind you that that word is tied to a promise that's advancing throughout Scripture. Now, the promise that we have in the early books of the Bible is that God says that I will give you a land. So when that verb shows up, it's to remind you that God's moving his promise for Joshua 8. Sorry, Joshua 1. The Lord says, Joshua, I'm about to give you this land. It's the reminder God's moving forward. Joshua chapter 8, though, there's a fascinating tense that's used here. And it says that for I have given into your hands the king of Ai. Now, if you are an astute person and you followed through, you'd say, well, wait a minute. That verb tense, he's saying, I've already done it, but they haven't even gone into battle yet. So the Lord was using a tense to say this has already happened, even though the battle was still in the future. When expressed in this manner, you're entering into the deep waters of God's decrees. That before the history of this world, God set into motion a plan. And that plan is something that is irrevocably decided. And so no matter where you're at history, God can say, I have done something. Or God says that I will do something. But it's all one in the same. Sports media love it when athletes try to enter into this world. When athletes, often as boxers, they make these decrees of sort. They say, I will defeat so-and-so prior to the fight. Muhammad Ali was notorious for this in 1965 before his battle with Sonny Liston. He said two things. One is, I'm going to beat Sonny. And two, I'm going to beat him in the first round. And he did it. 
At the end of the fight, the sports came up to him and he said, what do you think? He goes, I'm not only the greatest, I'm the double greatest. I told you I was going to beat him and I told you I was going to beat him in the first round and I did it. Well, the problem was is that Muhammad Ali made some other decrees in that nature that didn't quite come about in the same way. I read of another athlete who in 2009, she was on the Oklahoma Sooners basketball team and she says, I'm so confident that my team is going to make it to the national championship and win, I'm going to put my entire scholarship to this university on the line. If we don't make it and win the national championship, I'm going to repay every nickel that this university gave me. Well, they lost in the Sweet 16. And to this day, I'm not so sure whether she paid that amount back or not. Well, yes, occasionally humans can verbalize and actualize what they say. But what we know is that God and God alone is the only great God. And when he says something, he always delivers. It always happens. In addition to this one verb, we have what we call a light phrase. So a light word is a guiding word. Other times there's phrases that are used throughout the Hebrew narrative that if they could be highlighted, they should be. And one of them is right here at the beginning of chapter 8, which says, Then the Lord said to Joshua. It seems like a very neutral statement of one you just run your eyes over. But that particular phrase is used eight times prior to this in the book of Joshua. And it's to set apart God's divine authority. Then the Lord said... It's the reminder that God is indeed the architect and the supervisor of the plan. It's one, a couple of times it shows up, it said, The Lord said to Joshua, cross the Jordan. The Lord said to Joshua, go to Jericho. The Lord said to Joshua, go and attack Ai. What it's wanting you to understand and what it's wanting me to understand is everything that we read, all of these events are coming underneath what God's plans are. It's his providence. It's his plans that's governing everything around us. Well, how did God's providence play out in this particular chapter? If you would, put the slide up for this. I'm going to just talk through this battle. That This is basically the ch book of chapter 8 in an image. Beginning in chapter 1, you'll see the number 1 right there in the center, is not chapter 1, but beginning at the uh, number 1 in the center, we're told that Joshua and his soldiers, 30,000 of them, gathered here. If you look down to the left, you'll see the city of Ai. Well, what happens next is of the soldiers that were gathered by number 1, 5,000 of them, you'll see number 2, in the bottom left-hand corner over here is where they went to. There's an ambush that was set up. So the 30,000, five went down to ambush the city once they left. Now what happened is that soldiers in number three, they began to move towards Ai. Now remember chapter seven, the king of Ai had already soundly defeated the Israelites coming up the hill. So he sees them coming out again. He goes, get them. So all of his soldiers begin to run down the hill for battle. At that particular time, you'll see number four, the Israelites turn around. 
and they are running away from the king. But this time they're not doing it out of fear. They're doing it out of a plan to push all of the Aites out of the city. So they begin to run away, and at that point they stop. You'll see number five is the Israelites stop. At that moment, Joshua, the text says, holds up a javelin. At that particular time, the soldiers that are at number two, they run into the empty city. And then they set the city on fire. One final step, there's a city of Bethel in the upper left. That would have been um, friends of Ai. And they begin to run out, but they already have soldiers situated for them as well. So you can take that slide down. Now contrast this with Jericho. Jericho was this really simple story where the soldiers just went around it and shouted, and boom, everything is down. Well, if you were there, you would have had to say, well, that was all of God. I mean, all we did was went around and hit a little trumpet and everything just fell down. But this story is actually very different, isn't it? I mean, it involves strategy, uh, deception, swords were drawn. It involved people in ways that Jericho just simply did not. So if you look at Jericho, you'd say, well, that was all of God. But when you look at Ai, you say, well, maybe, maybe the way that God does, works is providence. It's part God and then part man. But Scripture never affirms that. What Scripture says instead is that the way that God's providence works is that sometimes he uses secondary causes. Secondary causes in this was, it was Joshua and the soldiers. And even though they're playing a part in advancing this conquest, what we are told is that it is all of God at all stages, but that God uses people along the way. Well, what does this mean for you and I, that God, he uses different ways to bring his story forward, to fulfill his promises? Well, what it means for us is that while there's different forms Different ways in which God advances his prom, uh, promises, he always does what he says he's going to do. He always delivers on what's promised. So what does this mean for you and I? Assurance. Assurance of what he said. Years ago, I was rafting down the New River Gorge in West Virginia. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know, they don't give you the the little Fisher-Price life vest, the orange ones around your neck with a little buckle that sometimes works. I mean, they give you the real deal life jackets. Arms go through, Velcro, five or six buckles that go across, and a pad that's the size of a, a linebacker's pad for football players. It would take a small army just to get your head underwater in a swimming pool. I tell you this because we got to a certain point in the river, and the instructor said, pull over to the side, I want to show you something interesting. So we all pull over to the side, and he goes, now, what I'm about to do, I'm about to jump in this water. And he said, you'll see what happens. If you want to do it after I do it, that's fine. You can join me. So he jumps in the river, and all of us were expecting him just to stay above the water because those life jackets are nearly impossible to submerge someone. And he disappeared. Gone. One, two, three. Fifteen seconds later, he shows up three or four hundred feet down the river. And he yelled back and he said, go ahead and do it. It's a wild ride, but you always come up. 
Well, I was the next in line. I don't think I did. I think I let somebody else go ahead of me. But inevitably, just after that, I jumped in as well. And sure enough, it was some form of jetty whirlpool portal that just thrust you down into the depths of this river. And it was dark. And I could feel myself doing cartwheels underneath the water. But inevitably, I rose back up, brought me back to the light, and I hit the surface of the water. You know, what God's providence is in your life, it it really is the assurance that no matter where you are in the river of life, that eventually he's going to bring you back to the light and bring your head to the water. You know, as I look out in this church tonight, there are some who are really safely in the boat at this particular moment and they're in the calm waters and they would certainly say oh I know God's providence we're in a good spot right now others of you might be approaching a rapid and you don't even know it others of you might be in a rapid but still in the boat and yet others of you might have been the one completely tossed out of the boat underwater in a dark space What God's providence says that there is a life jacket attached to you called his assurance and his promises in your life. And that not only will you come up and not only will you make it into the promised land, but all the things that you are indeed going through will actually turn out for your good. The opposite of this is true as well. If you're not in the Lord, the promises of his assurance are not yours. What's actually taking place is you're jumping down in this whirlpool portal. And all I can tell you is it's going to take you far deeper into a place far darker than you could have ever imagined. What the text is inviting you to see here in chapter 8 is there is a God... Who gives his people promises. Those who no longer depend upon themselves. But those who depend upon him. Not only do we have and see the providence of God. We see the power of him. I'm just going to take a few minutes just to look at that. It really can be seen in verses 18 and 26. 18 says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that's in your hand. For into your hand I have delivered this city. That verse is almost a mirror verse of going back to Exodus where Moses stretched out his hand and the Red Sea was actually split. It's interesting, isn't it, that Moses had this staff and it was the staff that he held out because Moses was the one who guided them into the wilderness. Here we see that Joshua actually had a javelin. Uh, Don't think Olympics. Think probably like a sickle sword. Kind of a smaller type sword for that. Because he was the one that the Lord was using to do battle with. Not only that, the story advances. And God takes Joshua. And he says, Joshua, you hold out the sword. But you notice what it says? Who did it say will deliver them? 
The Lord says, I will deliver the city into your hand. It's not the sword. It's the Lord of the sword who's governing, and that's where the power ultimately comes from. Verse 26, Joshua, we see again, he's holding the sword in, the hand, in his hand. Again, it's pointing backwards to Moses. Moses in the battle of the Amalekites. The battle where Moses, when he holds his hand up, the Israelites are winning. And yet when his hands drop down, they begin to lose again. So throughout this battle, Joshua is holding the sword up in the air. And again, it's the reminder. Who ultimately is going to win the battle? It's not Joshua. It's not the sword. It's the one whose power Joshua is representing at that particular moment. You know what I love about the book of Joshua as I've read it through in this season of my life is I begin to see more of the, how it points backwards towards Moses, the same God who made these promises to Moses. They're just moving right forward to Joshua. But not only do they go point backwards, they point forwards as well. We've talked earlier how Joshua is a prefigure of sorts of Christ. And the book of Joshua is pointing towards the work of Christ. But this instance, Joshua is the one who's wielding the sword. But in Christ, we see a different type of power. In a moment when he could have picked up the sword, he actually put it down. Do you remember the story in Matthew in the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was arrested? Peter went to pull the sword out. He said, Peter, Peter, put your sword down. Do you not know that I could call upon my father and he would bring out 12 legions of angels to take care of this? He said, we cannot do that because then how would scripture be fulfilled? What was Jesus talking about that particular moment? How was he fulfilling the whole of scripture that the Old Testament was pointing towards? You can't read this story in chapter 8 and not see a clear picture of the judgment of God. It's difficult. There's a cleansing that takes place, and it's complete. And what Christ is saying is that there is a judgment that God demands, and that I am the fulfillment of where this judgment is going to take place to make mankind right. At the end of chapter 8, there's a story. They bring the king of Ai before the, Joshua. And they take him and they hang him on a tree. In the game of chess, the game is over when the king is taken down. It's thought that that came from these early battles. They would take the king, and when he went down, that was the final judgment. That's what we see here in the book of Joshua. That's also what we see with Christ as well. This king came into the world. And he ultimately was God's final judgment on sin. And this one who had no sin, God made him sin to be our sin. So that when we are in him, we then become the righteousness of God. We stand before him in a right way. And that's ultimately the power of the gospel. This power that's seen all the way back from Moses, that I'm a God who makes promises to his people. And I carry them forward, seen again in Joshua, and then seen and fulfilled in Christ. And to those who hold to the promise of God, 
what this text is saying is that you will inherit a land. And it's not the dusty land of the Middle East. It's a land that Peter went on to say is imperishable, undefiable, and eternal. If you cling and look to the blood of Christ and depend upon him, then that land is your promised land, and that's where you will ultimately dwell. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises that are seen in historic narratives, stories of old that communicate the one simple truth, that you are a God who's made a promise to your people. You've given us Christ, who's the fulfillment of that promise, and to all who believe in him, we have the assurance of an everlasting faith. We pray this in your name. Amen.